Section 42 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section forty two chapter seventy one part one chapter seventy one james the second sixteen eighty eight while every motive civil and religious concurred to alienate from the king every rank and denomination of men it might be expected that his throne would without delay fall to pieces by its own weight but such is the influence of established government, so averse are men from beginning hazardous enterprises that, had not an attack been made from abroad, affairs might long have remained in their present delicate situation, and James might at last have prevailed in his rash and ill-concerted projects. The Prince of Orange, ever since his marriage with the Lady Mary, had maintained a very prudent conduct agreeably to that sound understanding with which he was so eminently endowed he made it a maxim to concern himself little in english affairs and never by any measure to disgust of any of the factions or give umbrage to the prince who filled the throne his natural inclination as well as his interest led him to employ himself with assiduous industry in the transactions on the continent and to oppose the grandeur of the french monarch against whom he had long both for personal and political considerations, conceived a violent animosity. By this conduct he gratified the prejudices of the whole English nation, but, as he crossed the inclinations of Charles, who sought peace by compliance with France, he had much declined in the favor and affections of that monarch. James, on his ascension, found it so much his interest to live on good terms with the heir apparent, that he showed the prince some demonstrations of friendship, and the prince, on his part, was not wanting in every instance of duty and regard towards the king. On Monmouth's invasion, he immediately dispatched over six regiments of British troops which were in the Dutch service, and he offered to take the command of the king's forces against the rebels. How little, however, he might approve of James's administration, he always kept a total silence on the subject, and gave no countenance to those discontents which were propagated with such industry throughout the nation. It was from the application of James himself that the prince first openly took any part in English affairs. Notwithstanding the lofty ideas which the king had entertained of his prerogative, he found that the edicts emitted from it still wanted much of the authority of laws and that the continuance of them might in the issue become dangerous both to himself and to the Catholics, whom he desired to favor. An act of Parliament alone could ensure the indulgence or toleration which he had labored to establish, and he hoped that, if the Prince would declare in favor of that scheme, the members who had hitherto resisted all his own applications would at last be prevailed with to adopt it. The consent, therefore, of the prince to the repeal of the penal statutes and of the test was strongly solicited by the king, and in order to engage him to agree to that measure, hopes were given, 
that England would second him in all those enterprises which his active and extensive genius had with such success planned on the continent. He was at this time the center of all the negotiations of Christendom. The emperor and the king of Spain, as the prince well knew, were enraged by the repeated injuries which they had suffered from the ambition of Lewis, and still more by the frequent insults which his pride had made them undergo. He was apprised of the influence of these monarchs over the Catholic princes of the empire. He had himself acquired great authority with the Protestant, and he formed a project of uniting Europe in one general league against the encroachments of France, which seemed so nearly to threaten the independence of all its neighbors. No characters are more incompatible than those of a conqueror and a persecutor, and Lewis soon found that besides his weakening France by the banishment of so many useful subjects, the refugees had inflamed all the Protestant rations against him, and had raised him enemies who, in defense of their religion as well as liberty, were obstinately resolved to oppose his progress. The city of Amsterdam and other towns in Holland, which had before fallen into a dependence on France, being terrified with the accounts which they every moment received of the furious persecutions against the Huguenots, had now dropped all domestic faction, and had entered into an entire confidence with the Prince of Orange. The Protestant princes of the empire formed a separate league at Magdeburg for the defense of their religion. The English were anew enraged at the blind bigotry of their sovereign, and were disposed to embrace the most desperate resolutions against him. From a view of the state of Europe during this period, it appears that Lewis, besides sullying an illustrious reign, had wantingly, by this persecution, raised invincible barriers to his arms, which otherwise it had been difficult, if not impossible, to resist. The Prince of Orange knew how to avail himself of all these advantages. By his intrigues and influence there was formed at Augsburg a league, in which the whole empire united for its defense against the French monarch. Spain and Holland became parties in the alliance. The accession of Savoy was afterwards obtained. Sweden and Denmark seemed to favor the same cause. But though these numerous states composed the greater part of Europe, the league was still deemed imperfect and unequal to its end, so long as England maintained that neutrality in which she had hitherto persevered. James, though more prone to bigotry, was more sensible to his own and to national honor than his brother. And had he not been restrained by the former motive, he would have maintained with more spirit the interest and independence of his kingdoms. When a prospect, therefore, appeared of effecting his religious schemes by opposing the progress of France, he was not averse to that measure, and he gave his son-in-law room to hope that, by concurring with his views in England, he might prevail with him to second those projects which the prince was so ambitious of promoting. A more tempting offer could not be made to a person of his enterprising character. But the objections to that measure, upon deliberation, appeared to him unsurmountable. The king, he observed, had incurred the hatred of his own subjects. Great apprehensions were entertained of his designs. The only resource which the nation saw was in the future succession of the prince and princess. Should he concur in those dreaded measures, he should draw on himself all the odium under which the king labored. 
the nation might even refuse to bear the expenses of alliances, which would in that case become so suspicious. And he might himself incur danger of losing a succession which was awaiting him, and which the egregious indiscretion of the king seemed even to give him hopes of reaping before it should devolve to him by the course of nature. The prince, therefore, would go no further than to promise his consent to the repeal of the penal statutes, by which the nonconformist as well as Catholics were exposed to punishment, the test he deemed a security absolutely necessary for the established religion. The king did not remain satisfied with a single trial. There was one steward, a Scotch lawyer, who had been banished for pretended treasonable practices, but who had afterwards obtained a pardon and had been recalled. By the king's directions, Stuart wrote several letters to Pensionary Fagel, with whom he had contracted an acquaintance in Holland, and besides urging all the motives for an unlimited toleration, he desired that his reasons should, in the king's name, be communicated to the prince and princess of Orange. Fagel, during a long time, made no reply, but finding that his silence was construed into an assent, he at last expressed his own sentiments and those of their highnesses. He said that it was their fixed opinion that no man, merely because he differed from the established faith, should ever, while he remained a peaceable subject, be exposed to any punishment or even vexation, that the prince and princess gave heartily their consent for repealing legally all the penal statutes, as well as those which had been enacted against the Catholics as against the Protestant nonconformists, and would concur with the king in any measure for that purpose, that the test was not to be considered as a penalty inflicted on the professors of any religion, but as a security provided for the established worship, that it was no punishment on men to be excluded from public offices, and to live peaceably on their own revenues or industry, that even in the United Provinces, which were so often cited as models of toleration, though all sects were admitted, yet civil offices were enjoyed by the professors of the established religion alone. That military commands, indeed, were sometimes bestowed on Catholics, but as they were conferred with great precaution, and still lay under the control of the magistrate, they could give no just reason for umbrage. And that their highnesses, however desirous of gratifying the king and of endeavoring by every means to render his reign peaceable and happy could not agree to any measure which would expose their religion to such imminent danger when this letter was published as it soon was it inspired great courage into the protestants of all denominations and served to keep them united in their opposition to the encroachments of the catholics on the other hand, the king, who was not content with a simple toleration for his own religion, but was resolved that it should enjoy great credit, if not an absolute superiority, was extremely disgusted, and took every occasion to express his displeasure, as well against the Prince of Orange as the United Provinces. He gave the Algerine pirates, who preyed on the Dutch, a reception in his harbors, and liberty to dispose of their prizes. He revived some complaints of the East India Company with regard to the affair of Bantam. He required the six British regiments in the Dutch service to be sent over. He began to put his navy in a formidable condition. 
and from all his movements the Hollanders entertained apprehensions that he sought only an occasion and pretense for making war upon them. The prince, in his turn, resolved to push affairs with more vigor, and to preserve all the English Protestants in his interest, as well as maintain them firm in their present union against the Catholics. He knew that men of education in England were, many of them, retained in their religion more by honor than by principle, and that, though every one was ashamed to be the first proselyte, yet if the example were once set by some eminent persons, interest would every day make considerable conversions to a communion which was so zealously encouraged by the sovereign. Dykvelt, therefore, was sent over as envoy to England, and the prince gave him instructions, besides publicly remonstrating on the conduct of affairs both at home and abroad, to apply in his name, after a proper manner, to every sect and denomination. To the church party he sent assurances of favor and regard, and protested that his education in Holland had nowise prejudiced him against Episcopal government. The nonconformists were exhorted not to be deceived by the fallacious caresses of a popish court, but to wait patiently till, in the fullness of time, laws enacted by Protestants should give them that toleration which, with so much reason, they had long demanded. Dykvelt executed his commission with such dexterity that all orders of men cast their eyes towards Holland, and expected thence a deliverance from those dangers with which their religion and liberty were so nearly threatened. Many of the most considerable persons, both in church and state, made secret applications to Dykvelt, and through him to the Prince of Orange. Admiral Herbert, too, though a man of great expense and seemingly of little religion, had thrown up his employments and had retired to the Hague, where he assured the prince the disaffection of the seamen, by whom that admiral was extremely beloved. Admiral Russell, cousin German to the unfortunate lord of that name, passed frequently between England and Holland, and kept the communication open with all the great men of the Protestant party. Henry Sidney, brother to Algernon, and uncle to the Earl of Sunderland, came over under pretense of drinking the waters at Spa, and conveyed still stronger assurances of a universal combination against the measures of the king. Lord Dumblain, son of the Earl of Danby, being master of a frigate, made several voyages to Holland, and carried from many of the nobility tenders of duty, and even considerable sums of money, to the Prince of Orange. There remained, however, some reasons which retained all parties in awe, and kept them from breaking out into immediate hostility. The prince, on the one hand, was afraid of hazarding, by violent measures, an inheritance which the laws insured to the princess. And the English Protestants, on the other hand, from the prospect of her succession, still entertained hopes of obtaining at last a peaceable and safe redress of all their grievances. But when a son was born to the king, both the prince and the English nation were reduced to despair, and saw no resource but in a confederacy for their mutual interest. And thus the event which James had so long made the object of his most ardent prayers, and from which he expected the firm establishment of his throne, proved the immediate cause of his ruin and downfall. 
Julstein, who had been sent over to congratulate the king on the birth of his son, brought back to the prince invitations from most of the great men in England to assist them by his arms in the recovery of their laws and liberties. The Bishop of London, the Earls of Danby, Nottingham, Devonshire, Dorset, the Duke of Norfolk, the Lords Lovelace, Delamere, Paulet, Eland, Mr. Hamden, Powell, Leicester, besides many eminent citizens of London, all these persons, though of opposite parties, concurred in their applications to the prince. The Whigs, suitably to their ancient principles of liberty, which had led them to attempt the exclusion bill, easily agreed to oppose a king whose conduct had justified whatever his worst enemies had prognosticated concerning his succession. The Tories and the Church Party, finding their past services forgotten, their rights invaded, their religion threatened, agreed to drop for the present all overstrained doctrines of submission and attend to the great and powerful dictates of nature. The nonconformist, dreading the caresses of known and inveterate enemies, deemed the offers of toleration more secure from a prince educated in those principles and accustomed to that practice. And thus all faction was for a time laid asleep in England, and rival parties, forgetting their animosity, had secretly concurred in a design of resisting their unhappy and misguided sovereign. The Earl of Shrewsbury, who had acquired great popularity by deserting at this time the Catholic religion, in which he had been educated, left his regiment, mortgaged his estate for forty thousand pounds, and made a tender of his sword and purse to the Prince of Orange. Lord Wharton, notwithstanding his age and infirmities, had taken a journey for the same purpose. Lord Mordaunt was at the Hague, and pushed on the enterprise with that ardent and courageous spirit for which he was so eminent. Even Sunderland, the king's favorite minister, is believed to have entered into a correspondence with the prince, and at the expense of his own honor and his master's interest, to have secretly favored a cause which, he foresaw, was likely soon to predominate. The prince was easily engaged to yield to the applications of the English, and to embrace the defense of a nation which, during its present fears and distresses, regarded him as its sole protector. The great object of his ambition was to be placed at the head of a confederate army, and by his valor to avenge the injuries which he himself, his country, and his allies had sustained from the haughty Lewis. But while England remained under the present government, he despaired of ever forming a league which would be able, with any probability of success, to make opposition against that powerful monarch. The ties of affinity could not be supposed to have great influence over a person of the prince's rank and temper, much more as he knew that they were at first unwillingly contracted by the king, and had never since been cultivated by any essential favors or good offices. Or should any reproach remain upon him for violating the duties of private life, the glory of delivering oppressed nations would, he hoped, be able, in the eyes of reasonable men, to make ample compensation. He could not well expect, on the commencement of his enterprise, that it would lead him to mount the throne of England. But he undoubtedly foresaw that its success would establish his authority in that kingdom and so egregious was james's temerity 
that there was no advantage so great or obvious, which that prince's indiscretion might not afford his enemies. The Prince of Orange, throughout his whole life, was peculiarly happy in the situations in which he was placed. He saved his own country from ruin, he restored the liberties of these kingdoms, he supported the general independency of Europe. And thus, though his virtue, it is confessed, be not the purest which we meet with in history, it would be difficult to find any person whose actions and conduct have contributed more eminently to the general interest of society and of mankind. The time when the prince entered on his enterprise was well chosen, as the people were then in the highest ferment on account of the insult which the imprisonment and trial of the bishops had put upon the church, and indeed upon all the Protestants of the nation. His method of conducting his preparations was no less wise and politic. Under other pretenses, he had beforehand made considerable augmentations to the Dutch navy, and the ships were at that time lying in harbor. Some additional troops were also levied, and sums of money raised for other purposes were diverted by the prince to the use of this expedition. The states had given him their entire confidence, and partly from terror of the power of France, partly from disgust at some restraints laid on their commerce in that kingdom, were sensible how necessary success in this enterprise was become to their domestic happiness and security. Many of the neighboring princes regarded him as their guardian and protector, and were guided by him in all their counsels. He held conferences with Castanaga, governor of the Spanish Netherlands, with the electors of Brandenburg and Saxony, with the landgrave of Hessel-Kassel, and with the whole house of Lunenburg. It was agreed that these princes should replace the troops employed against England, and should protect the United Provinces during the absence of the Prince of Orange. Their forces were already on the march for that purpose. A considerable encampment of the Dutch army was formed at Nemeguen. Every place was in movement and though the roots of this conspiracy reached from one end of Europe to the other, so secret were the prince's counsels, and so fortunate was the situation of affairs, that he could still cover his preparations under other pretenses, and little suspicion was entertained of his real intentions. End of section 42. Chapter 71. Part 1. Recording by Jim Dennison. J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N voice dot com.